We don't know the actual SNPs. We don't know the, the actual location, but we know that from a, from a family heritage uh, scenario, we know that if, if you had you know, one or two family members that had an, a fertility fracture, you are much more likely to have one. So if you, you know, you may not know anything about your bone quality and quantity, but if you have a history of fragility fracture in your family, then you should pay attention. and welcome to Peak Health with Dr. Gupta. This show is for those who want to optimize their health and maximize their genetic potential. If you like our show and want to learn more, please visit our website at peakwellnesshealth.com, which is linked in the show notes below. Here you can gain access to a 10-day body reset module, which teaches you about diet, sleep, meditation, exercise, and guides you on how to drop your blood glucose, blood pressure, body fat, and improve your biomarkers all in just 10 days. Also, a body optimization module, which teaches you how to lose fat and build muscle. Finally, there's a link to one-on-one -on -one consulting with me. Today, we're going to talk about a topic which affects us all, bone health. We'll dive into osteoporosis and osteopenia, what it means to us, and how to diagnose and treat it. To help us navigate this subject, I'm honored to have Dr. Doug Lucas on our show. Doug is a fellowship-trained precision health specialist, specializing in metabolic health, uh, hormone optimization for both men and women, osteoporosis, and longevity. Dr. Doug aims to address the underlying causes of chronic disease to improve both health span and lifespan. After finishing his training at Stanford University, Dr. Doug began medical practice as an orthopedic surgeon. Passionate about nutrition and disease prevention, he quickly became frustrated by the failure of the traditional medical model to allow incorporation of these principles into his practice, and this encouraged Dr. Doug to start his own practice Optimal Human Health MD. Welcome, Doug. Thanks, Robbie. Great to be here. Happy to have you. So we'll start with a simple question. What is bone health? And what is osteoporosis and what is osteopenia? Yeah, great, great question. And it's actually, you know, there is a clear answer, but what's interesting about it is that we I like to use the word bone health more so than osteoporosis and osteopenia because the osteoporosis and osteopenia definitions really don't translate really well into what we need to do from a clinical perspective. But just so your audience knows, so osteoporosis is, is just referring to, if you look at the word, just uh, porous bone or, or weak bone. Um, and we define it based off of the imaging, the main imaging modality, uh, which is DEXA, uh, which is a, a type of an x-ray. Um, and there are specific numbers on the report that will classify you as osteoporosis or osteopenia. Um, and those numbers are, are negative 2.5 and, and negative 1.0, uh, just based off of the, the literature that's been done on it. It really, all that says is that you have less bone density than uh, somebody who has at their peak bone mass would have. So it's just saying that your bone density is less than it, it probably should be but it doesn't speak a whole lot to the risk associated with osteoporosis, which I know we'll talk about. Yes, absolutely. And I think people don't realize how active bone is. You know, people think, oh, it's just sort of a structure that maintains your frame and attaches your muscles and maybe protects some organs, but bone is, is quite, an, quite active tissue, correct? Absolutely, yeah, constantly turning over, in fact. And, and that's why we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about the, the pharmacology and, and how the, the traditional medical model treats osteoporosis, but. One of the challenges is you have to treat osteoporosis and, and bone health with that in mind that this is a, a very dynamic 
um, tissue that is constantly turning over and a lot of complexity and interaction with a lot of the other systems in the body. Let's let's jump into the consequences of poor bone health and and you know what your definition is and what, what's the consequences of not maintaining that. Yeah, so the the consequence we talk a lot about ultimately is fracture. Um, and so with my background as an orthopedic surgeon, this is how I got introduced to and um, and spent a lot of time in the the realm of osteoporosis. You know, I took call at a, at a trauma center for a while and a community hospital, and we treated a lot of fragility fractures. And just to, to clarify that point, a fragility fracture is a fracture that occurs through a mechanism that shouldn't otherwise cause a fracture. So the stories that you hear of somebody who, you know, I turned around and I felt something pop in my hip and I fell down. Uh, or, um, you know, I, I tripped over something and I, I fell and I broke my hip. You know, the hip is strong enough it should tolerate those things. You know, I sneezed and I broke a bone in my spine. Those are fragility fractures. And and also they meet the criteria for osteoporosis, depending on which you're you're reading about. Um, so that's really the biggest concern. And the reality is, is that I think that yes, fragility fracture is a big deal and recovering from that's a big deal. And I'm talking about the risk associated with the fracture, but also the fear of fracture is one of the bigger things that I deal with in my younger population. So people that know that they might have bone quality issues or they've been diagnosed with osteopenia at a young age, they don't really know what that means or what to do about it. Um, and then they start sort of thinking about this, well, what if I had a fracture? You know, what does that mean? And then I see people that really have this anxiety over their bone health without knowing what to do about it for, for years, for decades, you know, and they haven't even had a fracture yet. So I, I really feel like there's both. Um, to clarify the risk of fracture, you know, there is a lot of, once you have had a fragility fracture, there are potentially um, a, a lot of morbidity uh, associated with that and potentially mortality, meaning that a hip fracture is, is the worst player. So let's say you have a hip fracture. Um, you are, you only have about a 30 to 40% chance, depending on the study, percent of actually regaining independence. So a huge lifestyle change, right? So you went from being an independent person to somebody who now has to either live in a facility or require, you know, part or full-time care. That's a huge deal. Um, and then about a third of those patients, depending on you know, how you look at the statistics, but 10% to a third of those patients could potentially die within 12 months. So for somebody that has potentially a 30% mortality rate, this is not something that we hear a lot about. Uh, and, and yet this is that's one of the biggest mortality rates of any diagnosable condition out there. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's scary. And, and, you know, I, we probably shared similar patients um, back when I was working at this large hospital system close to us. We'd admit all, we'd all uh, frequently admit uh, these patients, elderly patients, hip fractures, um, unstable, cr a lot of medical issues, a lot of chronic issues. Um, so we would co-manage them with the orthopedic surgeons. Um, and you could tell that when these people, this event, um, when they fell and fractured their hip, it was going to be a life-changing event and a potential event with high mortality because they were stuck in bed, not mobilizing. They were in significant pain, so they didn't really want to mobilize. Um, and, you know, that leading to all the co consequences of infections and other types of things that may set in. So, you know, these types of things can lead to these dire consequences. The great thing is when we'll talk about this, you know, the treatment or the prevention rather of this, in just a little bit, but the things that you can do to prevent these fractures will also prevent chronic disease in general. So it's like, a, you know, yeah, it's um, sort of a, you know, one, one, um, one stone, what is it? I'm, I'm blanking on this. 
Two, uh, two birds, one stone. Two, two, two birds, one stone. That, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great. So, excellent. So, we talked about the consequences of, of poor bone health, and let's talk about the causes of it. What, what, what causes osteoporosis and osteopenia and, and poor bone health? Yeah. So, this is where, the, this is where the, the, the challenge in treating really stems back to this question is, why did it happen in the first place? And that's what we don't address in the traditional medical model. You know, you as a, you know, you're functioning as a hospitalist in the hospital. Somebody says, I've got osteoporosis. What do I do? And I don't know if you guys prescribe the, the pharmaceuticals for, uh, for bone health, but, you know, rarely in that conversation do you ask the question, hmm, how did you get here? You know, we have this, this concept of, well, bone gets worse as you age and some people develop osteoporosis and some don't. And it probably has something to do with the hormones. Right, but we don't actually ask the question of like, where did this come from? Because if you think about the definition of primary osteoporosis and, and for your listeners, we talk about primary osteoporosis being this age-related, potentially hormone-related event uh, that occurs in some people, but not everyone, versus secondary, meaning it was caused by like a medication, like a steroid, or it was caused by a medical condition, you know, some clear cause. I would argue that primary osteoporosis probably shouldn't ever happen unless you didn't achieve good bone mass to begin with, there is something probably that caused all cases of primary osteoporosis and that we, we really shouldn't even have this thing, which is extremely common with over you know, 10 million adults in the United States that have osteoporosis uh, and, and many more that have osteopenia and, and most don't know it. Um, and so the real question is, how does this happen? And it starts with, as I mentioned, not developing enough bone in the first place. So peak bone mass or when, you're, when your bone is at its greatest, both quantity and quality, is early in adulthood. And this is one of the issues, is that we don't think about, we don't talk to our teenage you know, daughters, especially about this, or and men too. I mean, we don't talk to our teenage and adolescent daughters about you know, getting the right nutrients and making sure they're doing the right exercise for their bones. Now, again, it's a, that's a one, one stone, two bird thing. There's other reasons to talk about good nutrition and exercise, but bone health is one of them. Um, we don't talk to our young women about, you know, are they having normal ovulation cycles so that they're getting the progesterone to help build up their bone as a young adult. And we should, because women who are on birth control or have uh, awkward or, or um, uh, abnormal ovulatory cycles, they're at risk for having bone loss or not developing enough bone mass to begin with. Um, and that nobody knows that nobody talks about that. So peak bone mass is a big part. And then once you hit, you know, that mid twenties, maybe thirties, but usually in your twenties is, is your peak bone mass, then it's a downhill slide. And so the slide gets faster as you get older, it gets faster, particularly for women as, as they go through menopause, it gets really fast there for a little bit. Um, for men, it's more of a gradual slide, but it's a downhill slide. The things that cause the slide to get faster. Um, are things like, are you getting adequate nutrition? Are you being ex exposed to drugs like steroids or PPIs? Um, you know, are you, do you have gut dysfunction? Are you inflamed? Do you, the lift just goes on and on and on and on and on. So there are a number of factors that can then result in rapid bone loss or you know, quote unquote rapid bone loss. It's not that rapid, but it, it, it over time becomes an issue. And that's what we don't talk about in the traditional model. And, in, and it's because it's so complex, right? You have to have this really comprehensive approach to actually capture all those causes. And that's where the, the functional medicine or we call it health optimization or whatever you want to call it, approach um, starts to capture all of those causes of bone loss. Right, absolutely. And I like how you framed it. There, just to add to, to the list of things that cause it, 
that people may not know about, you know, alcohol is certainly one of them. Yeah, um, yeah. Being on chronic steroids, you can, that can lead to- uh, Even, even short-term steroids, actually. <laughs> short-term you know, steroids. Even, they say, yeah, depending on the study that you look at, steroids longer than 10 days, which is, I mean, who hasn't been on a, a dose pack? You know, right. it was probably just shy of 10 days, but it's not, it's not hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, chronic stress, I mean, that relates to it, right? So you're, you're in a chronic stressful state that can, that can lead to bone loss. Um, your diet, as you mentioned, um, nutrient deficiencies, um, you, sometimes genetics play a role in this. Um, what about sodas? You know, people, I've heard phosphoric acid and sodas can, right. can cause bone loss as well. Is that yeah, that's absolutely true. And actually, before I, I mentioned that one, um, you mentioned genetics just briefly. Genetics is actually a really big one to consider. We don't know the actual SNPs. We don't know the the actual location, but we know that from a from a family heritage uh, scenario, we know that if if you had you know one or two family members that had an, a fertility fracture, you are much more likely to have one. So. If you, you know, you may not know anything about your bone quality and quantity, but if you have a history of fragility fraction in your family, then you should pay attention. Um, to answer your question about sodas, yeah, the evidence is pretty clear. So phosphoric acid um, or phosphorus, you know, when we, we test that on everybody because it's, it's it, you get it from multiple places, not just soda, but soda, you get a really high dose of it and it can do a lot of things. So it can bind to calcium, so it'll reduce your, your calcium absorption. Um, and then also the way that your body deals with the phosphoric acid it has to manipulate the calcium stores in order to, to bind to the, the phosphoric acid. And then your body will pee out the, the phosphorus and the calcium together. So as your body processes this, this, this phosphoric acid through soda, it's not that it's necessarily bad. There's too much of it. Um, there's just so much of it in it. And it's totally unnecessary. Um, and so, yeah, the way that your body processes it will ultimately result in calcium loss from your bones. So it is, it is a no-no if you have concerns about bone. Honestly, it's a no-no if you have concerns about anything. There's really no reason for it to be there in the first place. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so now let's move on to diagnosis. How, how, do, you, how do you diagnose uh, poor bone health, osteoporosis, osteopenia? Yeah, so this is a, a tricky space. So most people will come to our practice with our, they already have a, a diagnosis. That diagnosis is generally done by that DEXA scan that I talked about. So DEXA is the gold standard for imaging. It is underutilized. Less than 10% of the people that should get a DEXA are getting a DEXA. Um, but uh, that's the, the primary way. Uh, if you are concerned about bone health, I'll talk about the criteria for, for imaging in a second. But if you're concerned, I would recommend that you go talk to your, your primary care doctor. If they say that you don't need one, they are cheap and, and readily accessible and just say, look, I want to do it. Or you can go to an imaging center and, and potentially do it without a physician prescription, but it's going to depend on the center. Um, but it's helpful to know because there are so many secondary reasons for having bone loss that most of us did. You already mentioned you know, chronic stress, uh, the medications, you know, uh, smoking, alcohol, more than two drinks a day. Um, so a lot of those things, most of the adult population fits into um, so DEXA is the primary way. The current recommendations from this, from CMS Centers for Medicare and Medicaid are uh, screening at 65 and older for women and 70 and older for men. The problem with that is that the horse is way out of the barn at that point. You know, if you think most women are going to menopause in their early to mid 50s, 
you have the most rapid bone loss in your life in the first five years after menopause if you're a woman. Why would you wait until 65, right? If, if it's much easier to maintain, this is true for skeletal muscle too, it's much easier to maintain it than to build it. Why don't we look for it before we lose it? If we know we're going to reliably lose it in our early 50s, so, right? So why don't we catch women at 50 or at 45? And so we know, hey, you're osteopenic at 45. Look, as you go through menopause, you may want to consider some approaches to help minimize your bone loss. I don't want to use the words hormone replacement and osteoporosis in the same sense. Um, but you know, there are a lot of ways that you can manage and mitigate bone loss through uh, potentially off-label prescribing, but also a lot of lifestyle stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's something that's so simple and inexpensive. You think you'd be, you you think you have ready access to that um, diagnostic modality, but it's it's sometimes hard for folks. Now, if you're you're saying if your physician, if your primary doc says uh, no, it's not indicated, it doesn't meet guidelines, then then you can go to a imaging center and just try to get it yourself. Potentially, I've had patients that have done that. I think it's probably very state by state, system by system. Um, but it's, I've unfortunately seen patients too, where they say, I went to my primary care doc and they said, I didn't need a DEXA. I'm like, okay. You know, and people that have osteoporosis, they told me this. And, um, so I think you, the, the takeaway from any conversation like this is that you have to be an advocate for yourself because our system is not designed to capture and prevent and really treat things that fit in this category. And by this category, I mean, things that have a, a multifaceted, um, causation. So like I, I put bone health in this category. I put dementia in this category. Um, I put obesity in this category, right? Like our system doesn't do a good job of capturing these things that have a tremendous lifestyle component, but our system can't manage that. It doesn't know what to do with that. Um, so you tend to be a big, a huge advocate for yourself. Something I wanted to mention too, is that there are other studies out there too. So DEXA is, is the primary there is a, another form of DEXA that if you have access to it, I recommend it. It's called DEXA with TBS or trabecular bone score. The, the TBS part, I mentioned earlier that DEXA is, only looks at bone quantity, whereas you really want to know about bone quality too, because you can have osteoporosis and have good bone quality and not be as high risk for fracture. So to look at bone quality, you have to have the TBS component of DEXA. There are some potential weaknesses to that. There's an ultrasound study which eliminates the radiation concern of an X-ray, although it's very, very small in DEXA. Um, and the, that uh, ultrasound diagnostic is called REMS, R-E-M-S. That's my favorite test, but it is less available than anything else. Um, and there's just for, there's a lot of opposition to using that as a, a primary tool. Now, when you're talking about bone quality, you're talking about the sort of the uh, the makeup of the bone, the flexibility. Um, that type of thing, because you know, people, the listeners may not understand that it's it's not just if you have strong bone, but it's brittle. That could be that could be a problem. Right. If right. you have uh, maybe a softer bone that's that's more flexible, but does not is not um, osteoporotic bone, then you might be in a you might be in better shape. So, is that what you're testing? Right. Yeah. So it, I like think of it like this. Like if you think of, we've all seen like wood structures as they're being built, right? Like, you know, if you're building a house or building out of wood, there are a lot of little pieces of wood. You could argue that that's a very dense structure, right? So if you were like doing decks of a building, it would look very dense. Imagine then compare that to like a steel structure where there's a lot of space in between those beams, but those beams are very strong. 
So if you were to look at what's the quote unquote density of a steel building with all that space in it, it's going to look less dense because there's not as much stuff, but it is much stronger. It has more pliability. It's going to be able to move better. It's going to be less likely to fracture than a, than a wood structure that's more dense, if that kind of makes right. sense. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, that's what we're looking for because there is, you know, as you mentioned, bones very dynamic. It is also flexible. And it's that flexibility is required to tolerate the stresses that we put on it. Um, you know, so imagine the stresses that go through the top part of the femur bone or the thigh bone as you hit the ground in a fall. You know, it's not the normal stress that you're putting on it when you're walking. It's a stress directly from the side. Um, and it has to be able to bend and to move to be able to accommodate for that. And a brittle bone, like we'll talk about when we get to, to pharmacology, brittle bone breaks in weird ways. Um, so we don't want, we don't want brittle, even dense brittle bone, dense brittle bone breaks. Um, and you can even see that with like, you know, like dense rocks that fracture very easily. That's not going to help you. All right. So let's get to it. Let's, let's talk about treatment. Um, you know, there's, there's a, the traditional medicine treatment and then there's the functional medicine treatment. Right. If we start with the traditional medicine treatment, what, what is traditional, what, what do most doctors do? Yeah, so this has changed over the last, you know, 15 years. We've seen this transition. Um, the first drugs really on the market that made a big splash were the bisphosphonates. So this is the, uh, you know, the Boniba. Um, it started out as, as only oral, and then there were, you know, weekly, and now there's injectables, and now there's even a, a once-a-year injection. This entire class of drugs kind of functions on all the same premise, which is we want to slow down bone resorption. Which makes sense if, if you know that you're rapidly losing bone, like most women are the, those first five years after menopause, you can use a bisphosphonate and it'll slow down the breakdown of bone. You know, I just take a step back to say, you know, we mentioned bone being dynamic. There is a constant breakdown and buildup of bone. So it's this constant ebb and flow. And it's really remarkable the physiologic changes that that stimulate the breakdown in the building. And it's so intricate with pH and uh, physical stresses and all, all the things that play into it, it's, it's pretty remarkable. If you take something like a bisphosphonate, you are using a sledgehammer and really hitting one side of this equation of, of breakdown and buildup. You're not changing the buildup side at all. And in fact, you may actually be making the buildup side worse because you don't get all the products of the breakdown. What we've seen now that bisphosphonate has been available for long enough you see some long-term studies which show that if you use a bisphosphonate for more than seven years, for sure, some studies show for more than five, but you actually end up with an increased risk of fracture, which is ultimately what we're trying to avoid. The reason why that occurs is because what you're creating then is a more dense, looks better on DEXA, but less, uh, less bone quality bone. So if you think about it, you need this breakdown and buildup to constantly remodel these dynamic bones. If you block the breakdown part, how are they going to remodel? They don't. And so you end up with these dense bones that are more likely to fracture, and they fracture in weird ways. And we noticed this in the orthopedic realm first because we're starting to see what we call these atypical femur fractures that have these sort of like spurring, and they're very dense bones, very thick walls, actually really hard to fix, and they don't heal very well. Um, we started seeing these fractures popping up in these patients that have been on this phosphonates for, for several years. And so now the recommendations have changed where you can only take this drug, you know, really stop it at, you know, three years or five years or depending on the recommendation. So that was the main class for a long time. The second main class that came was on the other side of the equation. So if there's the breakdown product, so bisphosphonates are stopping breakdown, then there's the build up side. 
So a couple of different drugs, but they both work through the same mechanism, which is through pulsing parathyroid hormone. And so uh, these are drugs like Forteo, that would be the brand name, or, or Tereparatide. And these drugs act um, by on the buildup side. So we want to make bone faster. And so these drugs are they're pretty impressive. So they will build bone quickly. They build both bone quality and quantity, it seems. Um, and they will reduce the risk of fracture pretty reliably. The downside is, is of these drugs is that in the animal models, um, you see, and particularly in mice, you see a risk of uh, bone cancer d- development. The risk in humans is it's probably really low. I mean, it is really low, um, but it's not zero. And so as, a, as because of that concern, they don't, there's no recommendation or uh, indication to take these drugs for longer than two years. So you have this potential to build bone up, but you can't do it for more than two years. Um, so then you're kind of left with this, like, well, what happens now? You know, so let's say you're diagnosed with osteoporosis at 52. You have an option that you can take for maybe five years. You have another option you can take for two years. So that doesn't even get you to 60. So, so now what do you do? So now there are these, uh, there's a couple of newer drugs um, that hit kind of both sides of the equation. And the biochemistry is pretty complex and it'd be really hard for me to do without like a whiteboard. Uh, but basically just say it, it, if you kind of march back on the, uh, the biochemistry of what causes bone breakdown and what causes bone building, you get to a point where they start to, to coincide. So the most popular drug right now is a drug by the name of Prolia, and it's a, an injection, and it kind of hits both sides of the equation. The, one of the things we found with this drug is that it has all the risks associated, potentially even higher, depending on the study you read, of the bisphosphonates, and I'll talk about the other risks there. Um, it doesn't really build bone as well. It does reliably reduce fracture risk, but you have to then take it forever. And so now you're, you know, let's say you're, again, this 51-year-old patient with osteoporosis and you're saddled with this question, do I going to take this drug for the rest of my life? You know, like, does this make sense? Is there any other option? And those are the patients that end up coming to me. And I'll tell you the other side of that coin with bisphosphonates too, the risks um, other than atypical fracture is that they're very poorly tolerated. Stomach upset, um, acid reflux, actually at high incidence. High-ish, higher than I'd want to see it. Incidence of um, esophageal cancers, and it all because it has to do with how your your what's happening in your stomach. Now you can alleviate that to some extent with the IV versions, um, but even then it doesn't go to zero. And then the other side of it is there are the, the the dental concerns. So this same population, you know, women and men in their fifties, sixties, and beyond, start to have dental issues. And so if you need to have any dental work done, and you're on a bisphosphonate, the the, the um, American Dental Association is actually starting to really push back against doing any procedures on patients that are on bisphosphonates because it really impacts how your jawbone will heal. You can develop this thing called osteonecrosis of the jaw, which the rates are pretty low. But even if they're 1% or 2% or 3%, if we have millions of people on these drugs, that's going to be a lot of patients. And osteonecrosis of the jaws are very difficult to treat. You can't get any work done in your mouth. Um, sometimes you end up with fractures in your jaw that won't heal. It's it's both disfiguring and has a, a lot of morbidity with it because you can't eat. So, you know, those are really concerning things, and Prolia carries that risk as well. So I see really patients are coming to me for the other side of the coin, which is the, the functional medicine approach. Excellent. All right. So, I mean, these sound like 
their options are they're not good options. Uh, they're, right. They sound like there's a lot of consequence to take these pills, and that's what we're that's why we're having this discussion. Is you know what else can we do? And in fact, some of these things we'll, we'll get to right now is um, some things would potentially probably have similar effects to these drugs, but they're done in a natural way. Um, let me ask you this before we get to that. You know, oftentimes I hear uh, physicians mentioning, "Hey, just increase your dairy, increase milk intake, it help build you know." increase ca uh, calcium in your body. What, what, your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, so dairy is a great tool. Um, it's a great tool for patients that need to, to gain weight, to build more muscle mass. We'll talk more about muscle later, I'm sure. Um, but dairy has some potential intrinsic negatives, which is it can be intrinsically uh, inflammatory. So beyond the lactose that some people don't tolerate, usually they know that, right? They get gassy and they'll tolerate eating it. The whey component, which is great for bone, Unless it causes inflammation, some people just don't tolerate whey. Um, casein is another protein, uh, a major protein in dairy, which a lot of people don't tolerate different versions of whey. Um, so it's hard for me to say, oh, just drink more milk, because for probably over half of my patients, they don't tolerate it. Now, we can do testing for that. So there's ways that you can determine, can somebody tolerate certain versions of dairy and not others? Are there higher risk, lower risk? Yeah, that, that's all the nuance of it. But I think just telling people to eat more dairy, uh, you're, you're kind of playing with fire there because a lot of people don't tolerate it. The calcium part is tough because if you tell somebody, you know, especially an uneducated person who is, just knows nothing about healthcare, say, go take calcium. You know, they're going to go out and they're going to find the cheapest calcium supplement they can find. And it's going to be a, a calcium carbonate, which is just like, it's like rock, right? It's like chalk. Um, and your stomach doesn't absorb it. And even if your stomach tries to absorb it, over half the people over the age of, I think it's 60, um, have low stomach acid and need supplementation there because they can't absorb calcium either way. So they think that they're taking all this calcium, but they're not even getting it absorbed. Um, and then if you don't have adequate vitamin D, you don't take vitamin K, then it's, even if it is absorbed, it's not going to go to your bones. So we're just, we're just not giving people enough information. And to be, to be fair, most of the physicians don't know this information. You know, they're just not educated enough in this, in the nutrition and lifestyle realm to be able to adequately educate people on this part. Okay. That's a perfect segue into the, the functional medicine approach. What can we do outside of pharmaceuticals to help with uh, this issue? Yeah. So I, let me just be like very, very clear. So I don't get a, a knock on the door from, you know, the FDA or the FCC. So all of the things that I'm about to talk about do not carry an FDA indication or they've not been approved for osteoporosis. So just to, to blanket statement, everything from here moving forward. That doesn't mean that we can't use them. It just means we have to be clear on why we're using them. So when I look, you know, when, I, when I'm charting on this, I don't say somebody has osteoporosis, I'm going to use these five things. I'm using them very specifically. So for example, um, you know, just start at the, probably at the bottom of the, the pyramid. And, and I look at this, this kind of functional or health optimization pyramid of sort of lifestyle and then supplements, um, then hormone optimization and then peptides. And then at the top is, is medications. Um, and most people don't get to the top, right? There's so much room for improvement from the bottom. Up. And, um, so you know, starting at the bottom is the lifestyle stuff. So that's the, the sleep, uh, you know, exercise, we could talk all day about exercise for osteoporosis. Um, uh, stress mitigation and nutrition. So I think the biggest, the biggest takeaways there is an adequate protein diet. And this is something that, uh, we, what is talked about is talked about with such bad information and people are just afraid to talk about protein because it brings up the whole question of 
animals and animal rights and you know should we eat you know this this whole conversation but if you just take all of that out of the equation and you say okay how much protein do you need to build to maintain muscle as a let's say a 60 year old and provide adequate protein for bone because remember most of your bone is actually protein not minerals um, that's probably closer to one gram per pound of desired body weight and if you're some of my a lot of my patients actually in this, this age group you know they are they are leaner than they need to be. They need more muscle mass. So we actually will push that even higher. I mean, it's about 1.2 grams per pound. Um, so for my 120 pound, 65 year old, who's been struggling to, to maintain weight her whole life, very different than my other population, right? But I want her eating 140, 150 grams of protein a day. Now that is probably potentially five times more than what she's eating now. She also then is going to need you know, and work to get through. You know, how could she actually absorb that much protein? But that's what she needs. Um, and my preference then is from animal sources because animal sources are absorbed better. Animal sources have complete amino acid profile. So just eliminating the rest of the conversation, that's the, the, the biggest part of the nutrition piece. You need to get as much calcium as you can. That brings in the dairy piece. Um, and then- But not, supple, not supplementing calcium, correct? It's, it's more calcium. Yeah, so I, ideally you're gonna get as much through, as much through food as possible. If you don't tolerate dairy, it's really hard. Um, and so that's where we see, um, supplementation becomes really important, but even in my patients that can tolerate dairy, we still generally will supplement too, just to make sure that you're getting adequate vitamin D, vitamin K, because if you over supplement with calcium, you do, you can see looking at the literature, you can see some calcification of other areas, particularly in vessels and, and blood vessels, like arteries where, you know, you don't want to see that. So then that, that's a good segue to the supplement side. I've, I've been, um, <laughs> I've been in uh, uh, social media back and forth with people on supplements. I posted some stuff on supplements the other day. And um, it's such an interesting field where people, there are many people that think that you can get adequate nutrition from food, you know, and if I buy local, if I buy organic, then I can get adequate nutrition through food. It's been shown over and over again that it's just not possible to hit even the RDI, the recommended daily intake, which is low for most things. It's even impossible to hit the RDI with most traditional eating styles, so like Mediterranean, paleo, they're all going to fall short. So we always end up supplementing. Now we try to test if we can to, so we can do targeted supplementation or using genetics, but eventually we're going to end up putting people on some combination. And I would say across the board, it's, you know, it's calcium, it's vitamin D, it's vitamin K. It's uh, probably boron for the bone health group. Um, it's um, uh, omega-3s, um, magnesium, and that's, that's a good starting point. Um, and so that's going to give you all the building blocks with, along with your nutrition. You could do all, you could do just those things. We didn't really talk about exercise, but doing the right, the right movement and resistance, we can do all those things. And that's going to have a significant impact for almost everybody because most people are missing that foundational piece. Exercise. And, and I want to stress this as well, how important that is. Um, moving movement, you know, muscle strength training. Um, many people stop doing that as they age. Um, sarcopenia is a huge problem and issue as we age. So even doing bands, which is not as uh, difficult for folks as just free weights is, is a positive. Using body weight, um, that's even, uh, even something that's um, easy to do and will also help build muscle. Reducing toxins is, is also important just for general inflammation. As you mentioned earlier, that inflammation is, you know, the cause of this. Um, you mentioned vitamin D, vitamin K. Do you, do you give them both together? And what, what is, 
Um, uh, could you just tell us yeah, how yeah. you do those? And, and then also expand on boron too, because I'm not familiar with that and, and how that helps with. Sure. So the vitamin D, vitamin K, there's some debate on, on this. And um, there's one, um, there's a, a group uh, in particular, and I'm blanking on their names off my head, but um, they recommend taking them separately. And you can certainly do that. As I create these protocols, though, I also try to be very careful to create something that is followable. You know, so I think that most, if people are going to take vitamin D and vitamin K, they're probably going to take them together because they're formulated together in a number now of products. So that's the way that I generally give it to my patients. Um, I think if you wanted to create the optimal approach from a supplement perspective, you would probably separate them out. But I think if you're getting enough and you're measuring and you're seeing the progress that you anticipate seeing, then you're, you should be fine. Um, things to look for. So vitamin D, generally you want to make sure you're getting vitamin D3. You want to test this one. Um, and that's why I'm sure you, you do this too. But so for me, like we're, we're doing three people I test every six months and this is not optional for patients. <laughs> you know, we, we have to do this. And the reason why is because you can take too much vitamin D. Now I don't fear monger or vitamin D because it's You have to try hard to take too much vitamin D. And even if your levels are, you know, at a hundred or more, we still don't necessarily see the potential risks. Um, that said, you know, you can start to see elevated levels of calcium. There could potentially be downsides to that. So we check calcium, you know, serum levels of calcium and for our bone health patients, we're checking other calcium sources too for labs. Um, and then we're checking vitamin D to make sure that it doesn't go over hundred. And if it does, we just back them off, but you want to get close to that, which is way higher than most people are. Um, and then the vitamin K, there's no blood test for that. So you just have to um, have a little bit of state that is being absorbed. The research is pretty good on how much we need. Um, and the the most of the good supplements are going to have that ratio pretty you know, two specifically k2 yeah and there's different k2s as well so there's k2 and the, the one you want to look for is uh, k2 is mk7 and the reason why is that mk4 is the other version you'll see out there mk4 is a really short half-life and so if you take k2 mk4 uh you're gonna to have to take it probably three times a day um if you take k2 mk7 it has more like a 12-hour half-life and so you're gonna just take it once a day it's going to be active in your body for longer. And then boron, how does that play into this? Yeah, so boron, um, but yeah, boron is one of the the minerals needed to create uh, the uh, the osteoid. So you imagine when bone is going through the building process, your body lays down the, the osteoblasts, lay down all this stuff. It needs all of these raw materials to do that. And boron is just one that we just don't get through diet very adequately. Uh, so it's one that, <laughs> uh, depending on which, bone health product you use, you'll see boron very, very commonly. Okay, great. Okay. So when somebody is diagnosed with osteoporosis, osteopenia with a DEXA scan, um, they opt not to, and, and I would recommend if you're not doing any of these things that we discussed, instead of going on these, you know, bisphosphonates, which could have consequences, um, do these other things first. Um, of course, we're saying all this with the caveat of get the recommendation of your primary doctor or your personal doctor before you do anything. But um, these types of things are, are easy to do. Um, there's low risk. And in fact, you could see tremendous results. Now, have you seen in your practice, have you seen people start these, um, these lifestyle changes, supplements, those types of things, and not need medications? Oh, for sure. You know, it depends on their starting point. And that's something, you know, you mentioned, get the recommendations from your doc. And it's such a hard, you know, we say that sort of a CYA statement. Um, it's a, it's tough because the, the doctors, 
generally they're just they're doing what they think is right for the patient, right? So according, you know, if they look at your your labs, you you know, you're 53 and you went through menopause three years ago and they're like, oh, you should be on a bisphosphonate because you're rapidly losing body. That's probably true. And it's not wrong. There are risks associated with that drug, just like any pharmaceutical. The, the challenge then is, well, what if I don't do it? So let's say somebody has a DEXA score of like, you know, like negative four, right? And their, their lumbar spine is negative four. Is it, is, it the, is it the wrong thing to put them on a pharmaceutical, even though they want to do a natural approach? Because the risk of fracture is so high. And that's where you really have to get into the nuance and say, okay, like, what is your risk of fracture? So for patients coming to me, and most patients, are not, they don't want to take medications. That's why they're in my door, right? And I've put people on them because I look at their lab, I look at their lab, I look at their numbers. And I'm like, look, like you're, you're at a really high risk for fracture. Uh, I think it would be helpful, even though there's risk associated with this drug, to consider this at least temporarily and do something that you can get off of, you know? And, and that's why I love something like Forteo for a short period of time, because you can do it for a year, right? And bump it up, bump up their bone quality quantity while you're figuring out all this other stuff. So I think it's it's a really tough decision to make. And that's why I encourage people, you know, instead of just, this is what I see most people do, they get that recommendation from their doctor, they go to Facebook, they're on all the osteoporosis Facebook groups and, and they're, you know, everybody on there doesn't want to take medications, right? So they get this biased approach. And they're like, well, I'm just going to take vitamin D and calcium and, uh, and call it good, you know? And then they fracture and then they're, they're, they have pain. Um, so it's, it's really helpful to get a, an opinion from somebody who knows what they're talking about. The challenge is they're just, aren't that many of us in the space. Um, so, uh, you know, we're trying to put together more and more free content to help deliver this information, uh, launching a YouTube channel so we can just at least get this perspective, which is in the middle. You know, it's not the, the functional medicine, you know, chiropractor, nothing against chiropractors, but they don't talk a lot about pharmaceuticals because they can't prescribe them, right? So getting this information from somebody who, who, who bridges that gap is just so important. Uh, sorry. Absolutely. Yeah, no, no, that's great. I mean, and that's exactly why we're doing this podcast to uh, educate people about this topic. Um, how often do you repeat the DEXA scan? So DEXA doesn't change very quickly. Uh, it's one of the downsides. You know, you're not going to really see improvement, likely more than a, a year apart. Um, if, in theory, you could do it in six months. But then, you know, DEXA, I didn't really mention this earlier, but one of the downsides about DEXA is there's a lot of uh, inter-testing variability, meaning that from machine to machine, you'll see variability, and then from operator to operator, so the actual person doing the test, you'll see variability. So, DEX is really only reproducible on the same machine with the same operator, <laughs> which is really hard to do, right? Um, so, it's it's really tough to even know that even if you did get an early DEXA or even a year, and you see significant change in, in either direction, that it's actually meaningful. That's why I really like REMS. It's just more specific. It's more sensitive. Um, less inter-observer variability. So a REM, you, you can do more frequently. And how often do you do those? I mean, if, if somebody had one at their ready disposal, you could do it every six months. I think it'd be awesome. But the reality is, is that most people don't have one at their disposal. I see. Excellent. Um, well, this was great, Doug. Thank you so much. This was extremely helpful. I'm sure our listeners got a ton of useful information out of all this. I think bottom line, really try the functional medicine approach if you don't have osteoporosis, you're actually in, this is the time to do that, do those types of things. You want to prevent this from happening. Obviously you have it, as Doug mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, <laughs> you're, you're getting to the point where it's too late. It's not necessarily too late, but it's, you're late, you're in a late stage and you really want to try to prevent this from happening. So thank you so much. Um, maybe you can just tell us a bit about yourself and how people can get in touch with you 
uh, if they're so inclined. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Robbie. I really appreciate the talk. Um, before I do that, I just wanted to mention one, uh, two more things uh, that you can learn more about on our uh, the content on our site, which I'll mention in a second. Um, we didn't have time to talk about the benefits if you are on hormone replacement for, for say, uh, symptoms of menopause, um, or if you like the idea of using peptides for things like uh, maintaining muscle mass. You know, those things also have tremendous benefit in the role of treatment for osteoporosis. So don't be afraid to look at those more aggressive things that again, they're in the functional medicine space, but you have to be able to type of provider that, that respects them, understands them, and prescribe them. To learn more about that stuff, uh, we have two websites. So Optimal Human Health is optimalhumanhealth.com is our, our kind of flagship site. We launched a second site specific to bone health called optimalbonehealth.com. Um, we did that because we do a lot of other stuff on the Optimal Human Health side, and, and this is just in such a separate entity. So optimalbonehealth.com is where you're going to find all of the bone health specific stuff and resources. Um, if you look up my name on YouTube and Instagram, that's where we're starting to, and Facebook too, I guess. Um, that's where we're putting more and more of the bone health content. <clears throat> the YouTube channel, we have a lot of stuff pending. So depending on how long it takes us to come out, uh, right now we just have a couple of, of videos on bone health, but we're going to have more over time. Well, thank you so much, Doug. It was a pleasure having you. And uh, I hope to have you on soon in the future. Yeah, thank you, Robbie. Good luck with everything. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, please make sure to hit the subscribe and the like button and leave a comment about what you'd like to see on our future episodes. Just a reminder that this podcast is for educational purposes only, does not substitute for professional care, nor does it constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for medical care, please seek a qualified doctor or medical professional. For more information, or if you'd like to check out our programs, please visit our website, peakwellnesshealth.com. That's peakwellnesshealth.com.